1: This is Sandy and welcome to Money Tales. In this episode, Cammie and I talk money with Tootie Scott. Tootie grew up in a large family on a farm in rural New Hampshire in the 1970s, where they lived off the land and created their own entertainment. During these years, Tootie became a competitive basketball player, which she says saved her life. Basketball provided Tootie an identity, exposure to the magic of teaming, and rewards for hard work, including the opportunity to go to college. College was Tootie's first real exposure to money. She quickly realized money is the gateway to her goals of traveling, gaining experiences, and helping women achieve more.
2: Hi, Cami here. Let me tell you a little more about Tootie. She excels at coaching philanthropic visionaries on how to play team. Her clients have included founders like Gina Davis, Noreen Farrell, Serene Jones, and Jane Sloan. After a 30-year career in women's leadership, Title IX protections, and strategic philanthropy consulting, Tutti is focused now on engaging people in gender lens philanthropy and investing. Tutti serves on the board of Tides, where she most recently was interim executive director. She's also a founding board member of the Women Win Foundation, which she represented at the United Nations as part of a World Cup panel discussing peace, development, and sport. Tutti is a featured speaker and writer who discusses collaboration and coalition building, moving from charity to advocacy, and the ins and outs of strategic philanthropy. Tootie has done a lot.
1: Before we dive into this conversation, this is a reminder that Money Tales is brought to you by Asperient, a leading independent wealth management firm where we passionately believe in the importance of having money conversations.
2: Now on our interview with Tootie Scott. Welcome Tootie Scott to Money Tales. Thanks for joining us today.
3: Thank you for having me. What an honor.
2: As we like to do so that our listeners get to know our guest, if you could share a little bit about yourself, maybe a few pivotal moments that made you who you are and got you to this conversation today.
3: Thank you. Sure. Well, I like to think I was born a feminist in the womb. My mom was 23. I was her sixth pregnancy. She had five kids. So, young mom, battling a challenging environment. And I was a witness to that. And so I came out ready to serve and uphold women who were battling against a white patriarchal system. And it feels like that's been my life's purpose. It came through for me first through my love of basketball, which I believe saved my life. Getting to play sports, specifically basketball, and be a point guard. Was my first place of identity and my first place of team and my first place where i was rewarded for hard work i got the most desire to play award at camp not the best or the most improved or no skills were recognized but my desire was and that was affirming for me and getting to be part of a team and goal setting and i was always the captain and the point guard get to set the tempo set the stage, coach people on the floor. It's kind of what I've gotten to do my whole life. So every job I've been, I've sort of been in that role of coalescing people and galvanizing people and inspiring people to a shared goal. And so I say that in the frame that there's a moment in time when you're walking in a hall, you're 13 years old and the gym teacher says, hey, you should come to basketball tryouts. And I remember thinking, I don't know, I haven't played. Let me try it. And so just those moments where you say yes, and it's also those moments where you invite other women to take on something. And so I feel like I've gotten to do that and pay that forward. Like, hey, you should run for office. Hey, you should consider being on that board. Hey, you should consider investing in this with me. So I think being challenged and saying yes in that time as a basketball player, and then I got to work at the Women's Sports Foundation for 15 years and be part of the women's sports movement. Sort of uh, upholding Title IX, and that was you know a way of really changing the face of leadership because in corporate America, ninety-six percent of women in the C-suite played sports, and I would venture to guess in other sectors, whether it's military or faith or business settings, higher ed, that plays true as well. So I'm one of those people. I got to be in senior management positions, and I got economic security. I'm also a white woman. I had the privilege of the education I got. And so I recognize that and I pay it forward. And so that's been my journey. And gratefully and thankfully, I've gotten to work with really phenomenal leaders and activists who've taught me so much. I feel very blessed. Thank you
1: for that overview, Judy. Will you take us back to your childhood and tell us what it was like growing up in a home with so many siblings, a young mother, and specifically, what was the money situation that you were being raised in?
3: My mom and dad wanted to get off the grid. They moved to New Hampshire. They were both raised in the Greenwich Corridor Strip. And my mom, in her dying days, reminded me of this, that she said, I didn't want you all to have a schedule. I didn't want you to feel like you were keeping up with the Joneses. And I hated all the wafting consumerism of that space. And so this was in the 60s. So fast forward to today, I think we all have an image of what that strip is like and what that environment is. So she moved us and they consciously bought a farm on I think 10 acres of land, which was a lot. We had resources in creativity and we had resources in being independent. We were resourced to be independent. My siblings all tell the story of, if we got money for a birthday or something, it was well, it's your money, do with what you want. So there wasn't ever any sort of guidance. We had two freezers. One was for T bone and shish and kebab, the sheep and the cow. So that's how we ate. We had an acre garden. So the other freezer was full of string beans and corn and vegetables, pickles. We had pickles in that pantry. I remember the whole setup. We made our own maple syrup. My mother was baking bread making us all our clothes it was sort of like an organic progressive sort of hostile setting she would invite people to stay I think all of it was her resourceful economy she was sort of creating and I knew no different I didn't none of us knew any different we thought everybody lived that way until I went to college at of College and I had a backpack and I think a laundry bag and people were coming in with like four suitcases and boxes of stuff and I was like huh all this stuff so i'm still very low consumer person we all take deep pride in getting clothes from a secondhand store you know if you get a high-end label for four dollars or something so waste not want not was a mantra you know they were trying to be like sort of young progressive hippies in the 60s i really don't remember seeing money move my siblings don't remember any money stories there was no question of any of us were going to go to college. If we were, we were paying for it ourselves. And so that's why I say basketball saved my life because I got, you know, academic aid and sports got me through college, right? So I have my first sort of money memory was seeing the bill from Ithaca College and then going to the financial aid office and talking to people and being like, so what are we going to do here? And by the end of my first year, they were all on a first name basis. So I had lots of people who were willing to help me. I was scrappy. I asked lots of questions, but my mom had ridiculous amounts of energy, right? So if you have five kids and you're making clothes and bread and maple syrup and gardening and, you know, we're taking care of the animals, I mean, think about it, right? It's phenomenal. And I think I have her energy. I think all of us lived one of the lives she might have lived if she didn't have kids so young. So I think that a lot that I get to be out in the world doing the stuff she might have chosen to do if she didn't get pregnant
2: so young. That's wonderful. I'm just curious, what did you do with the birthday money?
3: I either probably bought Puma Clyde's or high top Chucks or Adidas basketball shoes. I still love a good pair of sneakers.
2: Did you work for money at any point prior to college?
3: Absolutely. I think I said the other day in a speech I was giving, I said, I've been working since I was 12 years old. So 46 years I've been working. So I'm like, this is this moment in time. Like, hey, what does it mean to just chill, chillax, and write and think and speak? Um, But yes, I picked strawberries, rode my bike. Gosh, probably six miles, and there was a long freaking hill. Remember that to get to work. And we would pick strawberries. We got like a nickel a quart, and you know, moved as fast as I could. You got there early. I think I would still have been there. But the strawberries, it wasn't that big of a field. So he picked them all. And then he had, you know, because the, the manager would be like, you know, you can only pick in these rows today. He was monitoring the growth patterns. I picked as many as I could. And that was my first job. Cleaned out kennel poop, cleaned out poop. <laughs> you know, very flattering jobs at a young age in, in a rural <laughs> New Hampshire town. Yeah.
1: You grew up in what sounds like a beautiful home environment, very down to the earth. I love the hippie descriptions that you've been giving. Not a lot of emphasis on money, but you did work. You say you're scrappy. You go off to college. What was the motivation behind college for you? Was money tied into that? Did you, as an individual, think about money and begin to develop money ideas on your own?
3: The systems of money weren't part of our world. My mom was much more invested in us being in the moment, in the world, in play, in creativity. We were always doing plays. I think TV, we were only allowed, it was a small little thing. It wasn't part of our upbringing. I didn't learn a lot of popular culture, anything from that. So I knew I wanted to be out in the world. I was one of the few people in my graduating class that actually left the state to go to college. So I had a feeling of like, there's something out there. And I think that was also part of mom bringing folks to stay. She would meet uh, women who were traveling We had a woman from Japan, we had two women from Germany, and they would just stay in our home. So I was like, what's out there? You know, I knew there was something else out there. And I knew I wanted to do something in sports. I didn't know what that could be. So I sought out Ithaca College because they had athletic training. That was the only thing that I could understand. I'm sure there was more professions in sports. I just didn't know them, right? It's the 70s. I ended up creating my own major there. It's called exercise science. They now have like 400 students matriculating in it. But I designed it as like, I wanted to learn a little bit about the body and medicine and physics. And I just took a whole bunch of classes through the humanities department and wanted to learn about the body and motion. So, you know, we were focused on serving mom's jobs. She was taught everybody swimming. She was counselor at a child's children's home. She worked in a bookstore. It was much more about like, how do you be with people in a way that's soul
2: service? Judy, you talked about this feeling that hit me that you show up to Ithaca College, you've got your backpack, it's a great visual, you know, you're being kind, suitcases and other things just coming from the other kids Tell us, how did that make you feel? What were you thinking at the time from an economic standpoint?
3: Yeah, I think someone asked me once what class I was raised in. And I say, I was born in the class of hard knocks, and now I live in the class of elegance, right? And so we had almost all the adverse childhood effects in my family home. So if you look at those that have been studied over time, my father was an alcoholic dealing with mental illness. There was a lot of disruption in the home. We were fending for ourselves. And doing what we could. I have sort of just moved through life in a naive way. And it's a way of innocence. And I didn't think anything of it. I do remember seeing a lot of BMWs. And I didn't know what kind of car that was. You know, I remember like these moments of like, these cars seem very fancy. And I think I saw a Mercedes, you know, rural New Hampshire people I did. not What did you see in rural New Hampshire in the 70s? so there wasn't a lot of exposure to things. I just had an inner knowing that I wanted to be out in the world. And I wanted to be in the world, and I wanted, I was just a sponge. I loved learning. I was good in school because I just loved to learn. I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn. I think I've always had kind of a flair for dressing, so I could always make my clothes look sort of funky and colorful, and so I do remember thinking that my roommate had a phenomenal number of sweaters, and <laughs> it's like, You know, like the volume of clothing. There's definitely the feeling, you know, like at an Ithaca ceremony, like when the parents were around, I remember that feeling like an alumni weekend or something, You're like I was working for the Office of Public Information. And I remember walking around and feeling like, am I missing something? There's norms and cultural attribution and unspoken assumptions about different classes. And when you're jumping class, like I've done, you find yourself in environments where you know something's being said or something's happening that you don't understand. And you just kind of nod your head and go along with it. And hopefully later in life, I got to ask people about it. But at the time, I knew I didn't understand the plate setting. I didn't understand sort of the norms of the cocktail party settings, right? Where do you get taught that stuff if you've never been to a cocktail party? And you're like 19 years old, and you're working and you're like, what do I do here? And so what we all learned in our upbringing, sort of improv, right? You have to learn improv in a in that place space. So you
2: have to learn that the B and the D, the fingers, bread right on the left, drinks on the right.
3: I have no idea still. I have to look around the table and see if it is. So we'd go down to Connecticut, right? Remember the relatives, aunts, uncles, grandparents were down there and adorning the outfits to go to be presentable to the relatives, you know, because here we are, the crazy kids from the farm coming down to Connecticut. It <laughs> wasn't a lot of breathing being done, right? Everybody was sort of like, hold tight. Don't exhale. Something bad's going to happen. Don't touch anything. It's all too fragile. It's all too pretty. Don't make a mess. And where we grew up, everything was <laughs> free game. So two totally different environments. You're improvising. You're sort of
1: teaching yourself some of the social norms. When do you begin to jump classes as you describe it?
3: In my 20s, I was part of this spiritual community. I learned meditation and breathing practices. And I opened my mind up to lots of concepts from Catherine Ponder's book and Esther Hicks book. But that community itself was middle class, upper middle class. So being in and amongst people of privilege, predominantly white, who had fair time and resources to lean into your practice as a spiritual being having a human experience, right? But that was my first exposure to another class of living of people. And I appreciated their values of tapping into your spiritual self. And there was a lot of learning around money as energy, which basically sort of affirmed what I was raised in, how my mother lived.
2: I think she sort of saw money as energy. Can you say more about that? So money as energy, what do you mean by that?
3: Yeah. So Catherine Ponder, you know, she has a Southern accent, Unity Church. I'm a child of the universe. I'm a child of fortune, right? And those were mantras. But part of her teaching was around forgiveness and clearing. And so if you let go of worn out material items, worn out relationships, worn out beliefs about yourself, you can make room for new. And so that was a new concept for me. And so I, I was very drawn to that and affirmations. So you write a lot. You don't talk about what you don't want to have. You affirm what you want to have. Right. And so naming those things also is as you are grateful for the money you have, you give energy to your bills are just sort of the cycle. You're paying a bill and you're grateful for the lights that get to be on and the food you have and the car you get to drive. And what you give out comes back to you multiplied. It's just it's a circle of energy versus a lack and a sort of a pathway. It's cyclical. That's the teaching. That's what I was gravitating towards, sort of like a money magnet. I always carry and I coach people to have a $100 bill in your wallet, if you can. And it's a magnet. And it's also like, if something happens, you have a resource.
1: Say more about the magnet idea. I don't
3: think anyone has expressed it like that. I was aspiring to do more. I knew that if I had more money, I could do more things in the world. And it was experiences and it was helping women. Those were my achievements. I wanted to travel. I wanted to go cool places with fabulous people. And I wanted to lift up women. Those were like my tracks. So thinking about how to do that and practicing those affirmations about, you know, letting go of worn out things, but also affirming that you have all your needs are met. My life is in divine order. I have all that I need. And so having a money magnet sort of affirms that you're in a place to attract more if you're open to it. But it's not just you have the magnet, you have the hundred dollar bill in your wallet, and it works. You have to also shift your brain and your your attitudes and your affirming of that you're deserving, right? So part of growing up working class is you have to feel like you're deserving, and you have to like scrape off a little bit of the shame barnacles of can I really belong here? I had to work through a lot of that when I think I was in my 30s. I was working at the Women's Sports Foundation nonprofit. I was in a management position making 100000 a little bit more. But that income was more than the combined income of all my siblings in an annual year. So they're living, choosing different professions that aren't resourced as well.
2: Did you say the shame of it? The You felt shame?
3: Yeah. How could I be doing better than them? There's a lot of that when you succeed higher than your family, quote unquote, or your siblings? Do I deserve to go on this Caribbean vacation if they can't afford rent next month? So they've always been part of my philanthropy. I always help them when they have hard needs and things that are important to them. I've tried to help. And on top of that is like, how much is enough, right? Do I need this extra thing if they can't afford something important? But we've navigated a healthy dialogue with each one of them. I have navigated that. And we have together each one of them. But that's probably been the hardest thing for me with my success. That sounds incredibly tricky and exhausting. Well, okay. So let's talk about. So my mom died 20 years ago. But the hardest part of that was that she predeceased my great aunt. So remember Connecticut, the beautiful home we go to for the holidays. This outrageously incredible home our great aunt lived my mom was kind of like her daughter. She didn't have kids. And then we were kind of like the grandkids. So think of her as more like a grandmother energy. So she had left her whole estate to mom and mom died before her and she died six months later. And so all of a sudden we were inheritors to this estate. I wrote my siblings a long letter. This is why I'm I'm living. I I have a retirement fund. I have a salary. They're inheriting close to a quarter million plus the proceeds of the house that would sell. So there was a lot, it was a huge amount of money for all of us, huge amount of money. So I wrote a whole letter of like, these are the things I recommend you do, you know, cause I was anxious for them. Right. And what would happen? And you're the youngest, right? Yeah. Yes. I'm the big little sister. So, you know, fast forward now, 20 years later, I use that money with my salary, the privilege of my salary to buy property. One of my smartest moves that I've made with money was doing that. I also used the capital gains from the stock because these were stocks that my great aunt had for years. It was huge capital gains. And I learned from my job as a fundraiser that that's a way to avoid tax is you donate it. So I donated a lot of, made a lot of cool gifts. I bought computers for the staff at the Women's Sports Foundation. You know, just funny things that I like doing, capacity gifts. And my siblings all went on their own journey with the money. And it was hard to see some of the decisions they made, but they did what they did, right? So i go back to my mom giving us the birthday buddy, right? Do it if it what you want to. So they did with it what they want to. I had some ideas. I had some suggestions. I shared them. That was challenging. But we all had our own type of fun with it. I also started a little company, not formally, but I would call it uh, KBWH, Keeping Beautiful Women Happy. I majored in women in college, by the way. That's where I came out as a lesbian and, that I used to say that to people, I say, what'd you study? I said, I studied women in basketball and I graduated magna cum laude. And I'd be like, it's true. <laughs> I did. And so anyway, but beautiful women is not about objectification. It's like beautiful souls, women who are freaking kicking it in the world, trying to make good things happen. And, and then my friends who are all my chosen family, who have nurtured me through this quote growing up that I've done over the years. And KBWH would show up with like a bottle of champagne, a couple hundred dollar bills. <laughs> I could, cause I inherited a shitload of money. And I was like, what am I gonna do with it? Let's. And then I'd say like, you all want to go to the islands? Let's go to the islands. And I would just find a place and rent it. It felt like play money. It felt like play money, right? We really all wanted our mother to be there, right? We were all just still grieving her. It was super raw. And we were all dreaming about what she would do. So I named my real estate company, Zutzu Realty, which was one of her nicknames. And I bought homes that I could get rental income from and got to house women in transition, single moms, been doing that for 20 years.
1: Tootie, this sounds like a really amazing pivotal money moment for you, in addition to life moment of losing your mom and then your great aunt.
3: Yeah, that was huge. That was definitely a pivotal moment. I would have to say though, another pivotal moment that's not about money, although it kind of is, (laughs) because it kind of tells the story of how I travel in the world. I showed up at the Michigan Women's Festival, which is 8,000 acres, it's not happening anymore but it happened for like 40 years it was like the mecca of lesbian culture there was music outdoor music drumming you slept outside you ate outside i was like in heaven it was my sort of self-immersion but i showed up with a backpack and people like so where are you staying you got a tent i'm like no i don't know (laughs) what's happening like i had no idea again the norms the rules there was a whole you know you can imagine Everybody had rules about walked around the paths and be like, lesbians from Chicago, lesbians into leather, lesbian families. And I'm like walking, going like, where are my people? You know, where's the redheaded athletes? I found them on the basketball court. We played shirts and skins. We danced in the morning. We learned how to two-step outside. We did drumming. It was like my playground. And I was like, these are my people. These are my people. They want to play outside. They want to dance. You know, and then of course there was uh, market. It was another eye-opening place for me. It was like, books and commerce and language and I was 29. That was a transformative moment. I had no idea because there was no lesbian culture, people. You're like, come on. Like there just wasn't. This is the early 90s. There was no Ellen. There was no, there was nobody out. Billy and Martina had come out, but not with much applause or accolades. So you're with your
1: people, you have money in your pocket. Yeah. Yeah, your magnet. Yeah, I'm ready to go. You're doing great things for yourself, for your family, for disadvantaged people, women in particular. Is this when you start to begin to realize the purpose of your life or did you know it already before you were 29?
3: I think I've evolved based on environments I'm in or people I meet. I don't think I've had, I, you know, clearly, <laughs> I don't know how else to explain our upbringing, but it was really in the moment. What's next? very fluid very creative so that's kind of who we've all become so yeah i think i recommitted my desire to do more in sports i had been coaching basketball which is wonderful all ages junior high high school college but i knew that i wanted to do more than just work with sort of 12 women athletes and so i had Been a member of the Women's Sports Foundation. I was 29, I chose to become an intern, which is, you know, an interesting age to be an intern. But I did it, right? That was a big part of my journey. So saying yes to that internship was another big pivotal moment for me. That is really where I grew up around money, because all of a sudden I'm the director of membership and corporate relations. So again, go back to my spirituality and meditation. I'd done the internship, I got invited to go to London as another stage of work there was a women's sports foundation in london there still is i meditated i'm done the internship and i'm coming back and i just would meditate that i want to look out on grass and i want to write about women's sports i want to be writing about women's sports. i want to be in nature you don't want to be in the city so i get this invitation from a woman i had interned with She said come down and interview for this job director of corporate relations and membership and the women's sports foundation was located in a 900 acre park and the building looked out on trees. And I wrote about women's sports for many, many years. Oh my God, I'm getting goosebumps. Yeah, I wrote annual reports and letters and speeches, and I got to write remarks that lots of brilliant people said from the stage to raise lots of money. And that was just like, I got hired. Donna Lupiano was the CEO. She's a phenomenal leader. And we took that organization from a million dollars to eight million over 15 years and incredible team of people. When you leave a job like that, when you get to work with such hardworking, determined, smart, articulate people, it was an incredible team. I still get remarks from people that say, who got to work in that period of, of building the women's sports movement, you know, 1994 to 2008, that was the launch of the Atlanta Olympics and all the leagues and, when people actually realized that women could take up space and play team sports and not be just objects of their desire and they could be competitors, like all that happened in that time. And yeah, it was just because I decided to say yes to be an intern where I lived in Western Mass. I would take, I'd drive down to Westport, Connecticut, stay with my aunt and uncle, take the train, the Metro North from Westport, Connecticut into the city. That was a big deal. Huge deal. Travel into the city at work and, and stay out in Connecticut. And I got a subway token, I think, as my payment. But I worked hard. And then Marge remembered me and called me and said, hey, there's this job. You should come down and interview.
2: It's amazing how the stories weave together. And I love this. I love what you did. I'm being a former athlete, not so athletic these days. I just love it. Tell us, Judy. What was the decision like when you left being a co-CEO? And what did you go do? And what was driving this decision?
3: Getting to be a fundraiser was a place, talk about learning about money on the spot, right? I just, I had to navigate all these nuances. And we went from a major gift at the organization being like $1,000 to a major gift being 50000 right? So you could imagine the evolution of the Folks, I got to interact with, and I loved learning about their philanthropy and their journeys about why they were giving and then how they were giving. I got my first stock certificate. I'd never seen one before. Stuff like that, you know, just like what is stock? Oh, what is life insurance? What is this? What is a trust? You have to learn it. And I became a certified fundraising executive, and I enjoyed the values and the humanity of giving. I knew that I wanted to do stuff on a global scale, I knew that I wanted to get more involved in politics because. As a C3, you can't really endorse anyone, and Hillary's running for president, it's 2008. I'm sort of itching, going, there's so much more. There's a bigger world out there. I've done everything I can do here. I've done everything I can do. I raised a large endowment through many great partnerships with incredibly generous people. I saw sport at the time as a much more feminist act. I was starting to lean into my feminist roots of activism. I was coming out more. Remember, in sports, it wasn't really safe to come out. So I had dealt with many years of being closeted. So I was also feeling like I needed to burst out on the political scene. I wanted to help more women running for office. I wanted to be out in the international space. I wanted to go stop girls from being married off. I wanted to talk about issues that are happening outside the US and that sport can be an even more powerful agent of change for these lives and humans. So I left um, and started a consulting business in 2008, which if you all remember what happened in 2008, people were like, what are you doing? Starting a business around giving money and philanthropy. And it was called Imagine Philanthropy because I wanted to imagine philanthropy that was fun and values-based and had a social justice frame and was strategic. And so I wanted to coach people into doing that.
1: No one else was doing that at that time, as I recall. In
3: 2008, no. No, I, I was talking about culture of philanthropy. What does it mean to have a culture of philanthropy? I would teach workshops with boards and staff about naming your values, articulating your values, telling your personal story, being authentic. That's how you raise money. I would just go into homes and tell my story about growing up in rural New Hampshire and like sports saved my life. And like, maybe you want to help us do that for others. And maybe you want to make sure Title IX is enforced. So I don't think I could have been a great fundraiser for, I don't know, the Red Cross. Like I didn't have the same connection. And I would talk about that with people. If you don't love this work, if you can't lean into the mission with passion, you know, you can't really gather resources. People aren't going to be drawn to you if you're like, so here's what we need. We have some challenges. We need your help. That's old Old school. So, I coached. Women Moving Millions was just getting started. I was on the board of the Women's Funding Network, and that group uh, was sort of the incubator for Women Moving Millions, which was Helen Hunt and Jackie Zayner two Women of Wealth. One inherited, one made. Which I think, as you guys know, is different elements to it. Anyway, they were joining forces to challenge other women to make million-dollar gifts to women. I was one of the few women's funds at the time that had gotten million-dollar gifts, and so they asked me to sort of coach and facilitate with some other great leaders, some work around how do you do that? What does it mean to raise a kind of gifts? What kind of culture do you need? What kind of team do you need? What kind of messaging do you need? What kind of board leadership do you need, right? So I did that and I did it as a group and then I got hired by different funds and I traveled the world helping women's funds ante up their game. Be more justice driven, be bolder, lean into the courage, control, and confidence that women need to make bold gifts, and they need to own it themselves. So, I did a lot of work with teams and leaders that they had needed to be able to tell their own money story, their own journey, why they give. People want to hear that. So, yeah, and then I pivoted once I started learning about genderless investing. In 2013, I went to a gender lens investing seminar. Criterion Institute hosted it with the sort of grand dames, the founders of the gender investing movement, Suzanne Beagle, Jackie Ben. All of a sudden I was like, what do you mean? There's investments. Like I didn't even know. I was like, oh, there's this whole other place. Philanthropy is 400 billion, but there's like 75 trillion. What if we could get like a half a percent of that to women? What the hell am I doing working over here in women's philanthropy? We're not doing jack shit. We're getting like point something, 6% at the time. I think it's much less now. Anyway. So I was like, I got to go over here, more money to mobilize for good for women and women of color. Let's go. I've been slowly sort of being a translator for people in philanthropy to think about their investments.
1: Today, I love that you've been such a take charge leader your whole life and how all these different pieces of your story keep getting woven together, how you just keep pushing forward and you're bringing people with you. I'm curious where you're at right now. What's the purpose of money in your life?
3: I had stepped in in 2019 as the interim CEO at Tides and in 2020 with the multiple pandemics in the world of COVID, and the wildfires and the racial injustice reckoning our country went through, there was fierce political climate. The organization moved over a billion dollars in 2020 and stewarding that as a board member and then stepping in To be interim CEO, it was it was quite a mantle, you know, my humble beginnings, right? So you gotta work through your imposter syndrome in all of these spaces and places, right? But this was my okay, let now you're gonna really deal with it. But I was a long-serving board member who loved the organization. And I was a consultant who goes in and does organizational assessments and finds gaps and builds up talent and talks about values and leads with values. So it was the perfect time for me to be the leader and I went through a lot of my own money issues at the time. Right. So I, you know, COVID also brings up your mortality. So I looked at my estate, you know, and I, you know, I hadn't done that in a while. I, you know, then I was started looking at my own investments. Like here I am talking about gender lens investing. What am I doing? Right. I hadn't had time to do it.
1: Shoe cobbler's putting her shoes on.
3: Yeah. So I got to put my big girl shoes on. I did. I'm still in the process of trying to Work with people like Nia Global Solutions and Adesina, women-led firms that are doing real work on regenerative investing and social justice investing with love, which I want to be part of. And so, yeah, money is all about, right now, I'm like leaning into success on a whole nother level for me financially that I never had in my life. So I'm learning about what I normally do, which is I try and pay off all my debt because I don't really like debt. And I try and diversify. I have... Every, you know, I bought real estate. I did buy life insurance when I was healthy in my 30s, thankfully, because I think it's an interesting product to tap into. I started dabbling in buying my own stocks, started with our inheritance. We inherited some stocks that I referred to. And then I bought my own, got an E-Trade account. I was like, well, I spent a lot of money at Whole Foods. Might as well buy Whole Foods. And then it split. This was way back before Bezos owned it. And then, you know, I'm like, I spent a lot of money on Airbnb. Let's buy some Airbnb. I'm on Zoom. I'm on Zoom. Here we are every day on some Zoom platform. Let's do that. So I buy Zoom. I'm I'm thinking about retirement, but I don't even know what that means. So I don't understand it. But I'm trying to think, I've never really had a budget. Oh, what do I need for five years of living? Let me see if I can set that aside. That is like so not in any of the psyche of my family because we were day-to-day living. My siblings are day-to-day living. There is no cushion. So I'm like, I have a cushion. What do I do with a cushion? What does a cushion feel like? Can I be comfortable here? Am I not supposed to be helping other people? Shouldn't I just give this all away? Why do I need it? These are all these questions. I don't, you know, I've been working like a dog, so I haven't had time to reflect on it and actually think about it. I feel very blessed. I do know I work Hard and smart, and I want my money to do the same.
1: Well, at this first day of a new transition, I think you're doing all the right things. You're asking the right questions. And I have no doubt, with your purpose and values driven approach, that you're going to find really great answers that will lead you to make good decisions for yourself. I'm curious to know, in your experience, how does money play into feminism?
3: What a great transition! I just was hosting a convening of women who are. Thinking about racial, economic, and gender justice with their money. And so to me, that's a feminist, it's like an intersectional approach. If you're feminist with your money, you're thinking, especially right now, what are black, indigenous, women of color, queer women that I can invest in? I mean, I don't really like how Mackenzie Scott got her money. We could talk about Amazon and their practices and whether they have a living wage and they take care of their employees. But she got the money and she's deployed it in a way that actually is really smart. If you look at her grant making and where she gave money, I think it's pretty decently feminist in terms of her grantees. If people are always asking me, I'm like, look at her grantees, the 384 grants she made. They're all organizations that are in the communities doing the good work and they're led by people that are affected by the injustice. So it's very strategic. She looked in places where food security was an issue and there was economic disparity and challenges. So. I appreciated her diligence on that.
1: So, what I'm hearing is using capital to deploy in areas that will allow women to
3: create their own capital for themselves and generate the community. Thank you. I moved from the why to the how, getting people to action. So, I did a guide on giving with a gender lens, money, gender, and power, a guide to funding with a gender lens, and then moving money for impact, a guide to gender lens investing. So, they're very much how to. Basically, I wrote them as part of my learning and journey and thinking these are resources that would be
2: helpful for people who are sitting on boards
3: or want to think about how their money or their pension
2: is held. There's one other question that's sort of related. How do you define the purpose of money, Tuti?
3: Well, as I age gracefully and had a bout with cancer and have had multiple surgeries to heal my plumbing and my electricity of my heart, right now... The purpose of money for me is self-care. I will always spend on experiences, but now I spend on experiences that like my acupuncture and my masseuse are like my primary people and my chiropractor and any vitamin that I want, any special food that I want, I'm not gonna um, skimp. So to me, what did Audrey Lord say, right? It's a political act to take care of yourself, right? So I feel like you need me in the game because I'm the tip of the spear. I'm gonna be out agitating, calling out, patriarchal white supremacy in anywhere, any setting I can. So I should be healthy. So you wanna invest in me, so this is my model. I'll take care of myself, I'll spend money on myself. Then the next thing I want is joy, right? Working hard, we gotta find joy in these movements. They're just a lot of shit ass work. So where can I experience joy? Usually trips and places with my lover, Liz, that would be my dream, more trips. And then when I can invest in fierce movement builders, predominantly black and brown movement builders that I've been meeting in my travels. I just became a limited partner in how women invest, which was a $10 million fund that was raised from limited partners that we were all, most of us are first time investors. And so to me, like Vicki Saunders has CEO. There's lots of places where you can be a first time low level investor. Next Wave Impact, Alicia Robb is doing some great stuff. We need more women writing checks for other women and specifically writing checks for black and brown women and others marginalized by oppression that haven't had the same resources some of us with privilege have.
1: Tootie, we always end our interviews by asking our guest, what is your next money conversation gonna be and who's it gonna be with?
3: I am trying to find, this is funny, right? The cobbler who has no shoes. I don't really have, and this is great that I'm telling you two this, I don't really have a good financial advisor. I used to and she left the business. And so I do need one because I do for the first time in my life, I need to ask somebody some advice that has been around the block. And clearly, you know, where are my role models? So yeah, I either know people with tremendous amount of wealth that aren't in they don't nowhere near the same category as me. I don't have a lot of peers who have been successful and now are navigating quasi-retirement quasi philanthropy, quasi investing. I don't. So I'm looking for some of them. So I'm just put out there, <laughs> trying to find some keys.
1: Well, let's have another conversation, Tootie. Yes. Yes. I need help. But we applaud you on that one. It's a very good one to have. And it sounds just with all the changes happening in your life, that this is the right time.
2: It is the right time. Yeah. Congratulations.
3: Yeah. If I have some money, should I pay off my debt or should I put it in the market? Do I have too much in the market? I don't know.
2: Right. Holistic approach. Good for you.
1: Tootie Scott, what a delightful conversation this has been. Thank you for taking time to speak with us. I am so excited about hearing the journey of your life. You've truly lived through some really amazing times. You've been doing amazing work and you're a truly special person. So thank you. Thank
3: you for the opportunity.
2: Thank you, Tootie.
1: Cammy, I'm a big Tootie Scott fan.
2: I am too. (laughs) How could you not be?
1: Right? What a fascinating life she's lived. And she describes it so descriptively. I want to see her life on film.
2: Mm, I hope we get to see it.
1: Right? I want visuals of the farm, of going off to college, of the women's festival, of... Life looking out at the grass at the Women's Sports Foundation and being in those meetings and all the work she's doing with philanthropists, I think is so cool.
2: What an amazing journey from this rural life, living in the moment. They lived in the moment. I think she still lives in the moment, which I love. They lived in the moment. They presumably did not have a lot of money, but they had a plethora of resources and they made joy. You could just tell with everything they did.
1: Another thing I appreciated from our conversation with Tootie was the money magnet idea that she shared, right? Keeping that $100 bill in her wallet as just a physical reminder of what she can accomplish. I thought that was pretty amazing. And especially because she described that she was just really opening herself and preparing to have the right mindset around not being an imposter, being someone who is capable of creating capital and doing amazing things with money.
2: So what about coming out as a lesbian in a time when it absolutely wasn't acceptable? And we're in such a different world today, happily, and I hopefully we will continue this journey and be much more accepting of people's differences. But the strength she must have had to come out, to be proud of who she is and the confidence that she has and not let society and judgment tear her down.
1: All I kept thinking was, once a point guard, always a point guard. <laughs> I don't think she's left the basketball court. I think she's still taking a look at everyone else's moves and deciding which direction to go. And it was just thrilling to hear that part of her story. I agree with you, Cami. And I think the super clear focus she's had on women, on feminism, on using capital, whether it's her own or capital from other people that she's raising and putting that capital in the hands of folks who need it through donations or by creating work opportunities by supporting women-owned businesses just love that she walks her talk
2: her focus and clarity of what life's about it's so consistent through her whole story and she talked about at the very beginning she wanted two things she wanted experiences which was sort of the travel and meet new people. And she wanted to lift up women. And you just talked about the investing financial, but she does it in so many, from her mom opening up their home to how she is in her daily life, from her work, her philanthropy, her investing. And being at the Tides Foundation, that must have been pretty unbelievable. Starting in a rural world where there was really no money and money had no value to working with a billion dollars and influencing so much in this role.
1: Right, In one of the craziest years in recent history.
2: And then I like where she is now. It's the same focus, experiences and lifting up women, but it's a little bit more. It's number one, taking care of yourself, taking care of herself. And I really appreciate that because people forget how important that is because she's got to take care of herself to impact more people. And so I love that she's doing that. Then her second thing is about joy, finding that joy of having those experiences. And then third, the investing, investing in women, women, businesses, women in general.
1: I loved that we were having the conversation with Tutti as she is beginning the next transition of her life. She'd been working really hard in the Tides Foundation and just kind of filling in, stretching from her board role into the ED role because they had a need, working her behind off in that intensity year we just talked about. And now... Now the gears are changing and she gets to figure out what her new normal is going to be. And it was just really special to be able to talk to her.
2: And back to how you started, I think that there's a movie or something coming, maybe her own podcast. There's so much more to be shared of Tootie that I think we get to follow her journey and follow her, her magic she is leaving in this world.
1: Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Money Tales. We're so glad that you're with us from week to week. We love hearing your own Money Tales. So please do reach out to us at podcast at Asperient.com.
2: Thanks, Sandy, for being part of this conversation. And thank you again, Tootie. You were a fabulous guest.
0: See you next time, Cammie. Bye, Sandy. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cammie Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to aspirantcom slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales.